Uh, just before we uh, open the word today, I'd just like to um, share with you kind of a thing that's uh, been happening and that we're working on that we need your help with. Um, you might remember that uh, a while, well, last year really, we uh, took this survey and we asked people to evaluate the various uh, dimensions and ministries in our church. And as a result of that, you know, uh, you said that the greatest strength of our church is our worship services on Sunday morning, right? And uh, people really appreciated and enjoyed and felt like they were growing and so on. And then uh, we also asked the question, you know, what do you think is the weakest uh, part of our uh, ministry and our time and our efforts as a church? And, and the weakest thing was that, you know what, we aren't really doing our share when it comes to reaching other people for Christ. And we just felt like that. And that's what came, that's what you said. That was what the survey revealed. And so you know, then the elders took all the results of that survey, and there were other things, but that was like the top issue. And we went away and spent some time praying and asking the Lord to give us direction. And we decided that, how, we asked the question, how could we use our strength to address our weakness? How could we use our Sunday, you know, worship times to address the fact that, wow, we really aren't doing our share when it comes to reaching lost people? And so we decided that this Christmas... Um, instead of having a concert like we always uh, have done well, for many years in the past, and we all enjoy that, and we all come together, and we have a great time, you know, and we had a nice uh, feed after it and all of that, but we decided that uh, maybe it'd be better this Christmas if we used our morning worship services when, if anybody's going to come to church, they're going to know that they're going to come on Sunday mornings, and uh, we'll ask our people to invite people to church, and then we'll gear our services to those people. We'll set ourselves aside. It's kind of like, remember the parable that Jesus told about the shepherd that has a hundred sheep and he leaves the ninety and nine to go after the one that's lost? It's kind of like that. Like, we're going to forget about ourselves at Christmas because we're all on board. We're all found. We have all this, you know, richness from Christ. But there's a lot of people living here in Fairfield County who are clueless about what God's done for them. And so what we would like to ask you to do is to begin to pray now. And to begin to think and ask the Lord to reveal to you, who are you going to bring to church during the Christmas season? And uh, you begin to pray for that person, figure out how you're going to invite them. And uh, we're going to try to use our strength to address our weakness. And we're hoping that this Christmas will be an opportunity. If anybody's going to come to church, it's usually at Christmas time or Easter. And uh, so that's what we'd like to do. And so we put together, or we're in the process of putting together, a series of messages by the title... All I want for Christmas is, and uh, I'm thinking, we're thinking of things like, you know, all I want for Christmas is to be happy. Well, you know what? Jesus came to give you joy, joy to the world. The Lord has come. You're just missing it. All I want for Christmas is to not have to die, not have to have an end to life. Well, good news. That's why Jesus came, to give us eternal life. How are we going to get this out to the people who really need to hear it? And, you know, we get so comfortable in it, we're so happy about it, and we're so comfortable in it, we don't really think about what would it be like to be in the world and not find happiness and not have eternal life, you know? So that's what we're going to do over the four um, Sundays of Christmas, four or five Sundays that uh, starting right after Thanksgiving. So would you pray and just begin to think about, you know, who would the Lord have me? Who do you know that's really missing out on why Christmas happened? And would you begin to um, think about how you're going to reach out to that person and uh, begin to pray for them? And then um, 
<clears throat> I also wanted to uh, just share with you that uh, uh, you remember, most of us know that we had to buy a new air conditioner this year and we had to buy uh, a new furnace last year. And so that put us behind like $125,000. Well, I know that you're thinking that maybe somebody else has picked up the slack, but I'm here to tell you nobody else has done that yet. So if you're thinking that, you know, this is on somebody else, I just wanted to let you know that now that hasn't happened yet. So as we come towards the end of the year, we're really behind. We're about 20% behind in our budget. And so, uh, again, I would just share that with you and ask you that you might uh, ask the Lord what your part in that is and and that we might uh, address that together. Okay, I've got a really tough job this morning, okay? Um, because in our ongoing study of the book of Hebrews, we come this morning to a warning. There are five warnings in the book of Hebrews, and I've avoided them all up to this point, but I can't do it anymore. And so I want to address this, uh, this theme that runs through Hebrews, and uh, this is... Uh, you know, uh, this warning that we come to in this portion of the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, uh, is uh, arguably uh, the most severe uh, of the five warnings. And uh, you might remember that, you know, the book of Hebrews is addressed to Christian people, right? It's addressed to Christian people who are being tempted to go soft on their faith in Christ because they're taking hits for their faith. Uh, the more strong their faith grows, the more they stand up for their faith, uh, the more they're convinced that Jesus is the only answer to our dilemmas and our problems and so forth, the more they did that, the more hits they took. And uh, at, the, at the beginning, when they first became Christians, they were happy to take those hits. If you have your Bible in Hebrews chapter 10, page 107, uh, in the Bibles there in the seats, <clears throat> the author of Hebrews says in verse 32, chapter 10, uh, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you heard the gospel, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one, have an eternal home. And so you were okay with losing your property, you know, in this life. Um, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. These people were ready to go soft on their faith, uh, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So at the beginning, right, there was a lot of pressure, and these people rose to the occasion. And they were strong. But guess what? The pressure didn't let up. In fact, it got more intense. And so now they were saying, you know, uh, they were saying, I think you've probably said this at some point. These people were starting to say, like, God, where are you? You ever say that? You ever get in a situation in your life and say, Jesus, wh where are you? I've been praying about this and praying about this and praying about this. And, you know, it's gone the opposite way. 
And at first, when we become Christians, we're strong. But then as time goes on and life doesn't work out the way that maybe we thought, you know, and, and when we're young, we're raising children and we're all about Jesus and the Bible and prayers and church and you know, all those things are priorities. But then as time goes on and life doesn't work out the way that we thought it would, we start asking the question, Lord, where are you? I really thought that, you know, if I walked with you, that, you know, when I got to this stage of my life, it would be like this, not like that. And so on. And, and so uh, we begin to kind of ask that question. I had a guy call me th- just this past week. And he said, you know, I'm at the point, Dave, can you help me? I, I, I just, I wonder, like, where is God in my life? Because all of these different things are, are happening to him. And so whenever we feel like that, right, whenever we're asking that question or whenever we're tempted to go soft on our faith, look at our two choices here, right? Do you see in this passage what the... Uh, the, the two choices are that we have. We can either shrink or we can grow our faith. Either your faith grows to encompass the new circumstances and you have to have a deeper faith that grows deeper or you begin to shrink. And that's what these people, they were tempted to shrink. And, and uh, there's a quote here in, from the Old Testament. Actually, it's from two different passages in the Old Testament. Uh, Yet a little while and the coming one will come. Jesus is coming. There will be a day when your faith will be vindicated. There will be a day when the rest of the world will say, oh, I wish I was like you, and held on to my faith and held on to my loyalty to Christ and so forth. But my righteous one, those who trust Christ, you know, will live by faith. How do we get through those times? Our faith has to grow. But if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Can I tell you? All of Christianity is based on God loving us. When God gets to the point where he has no more pleasure in us, we are in deep, deep, deep weeds. When God says, I no longer have any pleasure because of shrinking back, and that's what these people were in danger of. And so the author says in that 39th verse, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. What are the consequences of shrinking back? We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls there's only two choices here as we go through life you know faith is one of those live things that either it grows and it encompasses more and it's a challenge it's hard isn't it there's a lot of christians who get so far and check out you know you gotta ask our we need to ask ourselves you know as we get older is our faith growing or shrinking Is more on the line with our faith or are we shrinking away from it? Is it becoming everything to us? And oh my goodness, you know, as I think about, you know, coming towards the end of my life, my faith just means everything. I wouldn't trade it for the whole world, you know. Or am I starting to shrink away because I'm going to take hits when I think like that? You know why? Because the kingdom of God is not welcome in the kingdom of this world. And we begin to sense the tension that it creates. And, and so, but we only have these two choices. The, the first part of that quote comes from Isaiah in which the Lord is coming back to judge the wicked. And the second part comes from the book of Habakkuk in which the Lord is coming back. What's in common is the Lord is coming back. But in Habakkuk, the Lord is coming back to reward the righteous. And that's what's going to happen. That's what the whole Bible tells us, that when the Lord comes back, he's going to judge the wicked and he's going to reward the righteous. And that's exactly what you know, Habakkuk says. If you shrink back, 
you know, God has no pleasure, we'll be destroyed. But if we grow our faith, we'll preserve our souls uh, all the way until the end. And so we need to ask that question, you know, is our faith growing or is our faith shrinking? And uh, I think in order for your faith to grow, you have to attach it to eternal life. You have to attach it. You have to take the little story of your life, the first 70, 80 years of your life, and you have to attach it to the big story of God's eternity. Otherwise, you will shrink from your faith. If you, think you're, if you always think that your life is just the first 100 years, your faith always shrinks because it doesn't, make, it doesn't add up here. Even Jesus in um, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, even Jesus, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. How did he endure the cross? How did he hang on the cross and say, God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How did he go through that? He did it by keeping his eyes focused on the joy that was promised him, that was set before him for being obedient to the Father. It's the same way that we grow our faith. It's when we attach our lives to the eternity that God has promised. You know, don't forget that we were made in the image of God. We were created to be like God. Um, And you know the story, right? Our original parents uh, rebelled against God. They sinned. And sin then uh, got into the whole human race and sin... You know, it's just deviating from what God made us to be. Sin is anything whereby we deviate from uh, God making us like himself. And if you think about it, I would tell you that all of God's laws, all of God's commands are just reflections of God's character. If you think about all the commandments, you think about all the laws that God has made, all of them are just reflections of his own character. Because why? Because you and I were made to be like him. That's why all sin is against God. All sin is against God. We were made to be like him. We've rebelled against that, you know. Uh, And as a result of that, a lot of problems have uh, come our way. Psalm uh, 51 and verse 4, uh, David puts it like this. This is David's, you know, um, uh, confession psalm. And verse 4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. All sin is against um, God. Romans uh, chapter 8, the Apostle Paul talks about this in uh, verse 7. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. If your whole life is focused on just the first hundred years, if your mind is set on this life, right? If your mind is set on the flesh as opposed to the spirit uh, in this passage, um, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. And here's what Paul says. He says, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We read this morning from the 119th Psalm about uh, you know, really having a passion for God's word and talked about why would you give your life to worthless things that aren't going to last? And uh, we were with some friends last night having dinner and they're moving and they were talking about all the stuff they've accumulated and how they're trying to give it away and how important it was at one time and how meaningless and useless it is now. And they look back and, they, and we were talking about, yeah, you know, there's some people their whole life they just go through, it's all about just collecting more junk. And we have a a whole advertising industry that spends bazillions of dollars trying to get into your head telling you this is what you need to be happy and satisfied and fulfilled. 
And, you know, we, if we buy into that, we spend our whole life chasing, focused on the flesh. Uh, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We have to choose our focus. And you can't choose that until you connect to uh, the life that Christ came to give us. And so I think basically, you know, God's laws come in two forms. They're basically do this and don't do that, right? And, and, you know, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, I didn't break any of the commandments. But did you do any of the commands that God has given you? So we sin when we don't do what God tells us to do, go and make disciples, right? And we sin when we do what God tells us not to do. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal. Don't, you know? And so those two forms, either way, they simply define the character of God. And that's why all sin is against him, and it creates an indebtedness to God. That's what sin does. It makes us debtors to God. And there's only two things that can happen with your debt. Either pay it off to get right again, which is impossible with regard to sin, because the only way sin can be paid for is with your blood. There is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. You can't pay for your sins unless you die. And if you die, you're separated from God in your sins. The only other way you can deal with debt is to have somebody forgive you. And that's why there's only one way for people to be reconciled to God, and it's through the blood of Christ. It's through the sacrificial death of Christ on our behalf, because he had no debt of his own. And so he took on our debt in order that God might forgive us. I think there are four major arenas in our life, all of which are affected negatively uh, by sin. And uh, here's what happened. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 5, Genesis chapter 5, the first couple of verses, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made man in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. Now, when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son, listen to this, in his own likeness. Why is there such a mess in the world? God made us to be like him. Adam rebelled. Adam and Eve rebelled. They sinned. They got separated from God. And everybody born after that was made in the likeness of Adam and Eve with that rebellious nature. Isn't that amazing? And so all the way down to us, that's been the story, right? And uh, after his own likeness, after his own image, and so on. And that's how the whole human race got into this giant mess that we're all in. And so I would like to suggest to you that, you know, when, when God made us to be like him, and we instead use our lives for a different purpose, and that becomes our focus, we destroy ourselves, it's kind, of like, it's kind of like taking your cell phone and trying to drive a nail with it. Your cell phone was never designed to be a hammer. But if you try to use it like a hammer, you'll ruin it. And you and I were designed to be like God, not like Adam and Eve. And when we give our lives to being like Adam and Eve, we destroy ourselves. And, and there's, I think, four major arenas in which sin has um, you know, really ruined us um, our life with God. First of all, sin separates us from God. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, we read the consequences of sin. Verse 8 says, uh, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God 
among the trees of the garden. The first thing that happens when sin happens is we, we and God are separated. There's all of a sudden, dis, call it the theological arena. All of a sudden, God, you know, that's not the way it was before. And so look at the very first question that God ever asks any human being in verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? I think that's the question God is still asking the majority of people in the world today. Where are you? Why are you running from me? Why are you hiding from me? Why are you afraid of me? I think it's the question that God is still asking initially uh, the majority of people in the world today. Where are you? Well, see, sin creates this distance. It wasn't that way when God created us. He created us to be like him. Uh, Most people are hiding from God. It's the theological arena. Second, I think sin alienates us from ourselves, not only from God, but from ourselves. Uh, Look at verse 10. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Where does fear come from? I was afraid. Uh, And why were you afraid? Because I was naked and I hid myself. Where does shame come from? And all of a sudden, there's this alienation from, not just from God, but from ourselves. Uh, Where there was peace and contentment with God and relaxation and comfort, sin created shame and self-consciousness and fear a loss of identity as a son or a daughter of the living God. All the negative emotions like guilt and shame and anxiety and depression and abuse and sexual deviation all stem from this loss of intimacy and identity with God. We were made to worship and serve God. That's our purpose. We were made to be like him and to enjoy him, right? And instead, um, when, when we get separated from him and when we get confused about who we are and what we're supposed to do, we begin to worship and serve something else. It's what the Bible calls idolatry. Anything that takes God's place, anything that you think is going to bring fulfillment, it can be another person, it can be a marriage, it can be kids, it can be money, it can be power, it can be a job, it can be anything. And it takes that place where we think, ah, oh, if I could just do this or get that, that then my life would come together, you know? Because we're separated from understanding who we really are and how we were made and and so on. And then third, it seems to me that our relationships fall apart. The whole social arena of our lives. In chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 7, the eyes of both Adam and Eve were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They began to hide from one another. They began to uh, retreat from one another. Verses 12 and 13. Um, The man said, the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's her fault. Blame gets in relationships, right? And, uh, and then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, ah, oh, it's the serpent that deceived me and, and uh, tricked me. And that's why I fell for this and, and, and so on. And, uh, you know, there's a very interesting uh, passage of scripture in the New Testament along these lines about what happens in our relationships and why we argue and fight and quarrel In uh, chapter 4 of James, it says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? I remember uh, coming across this verse years ago, and uh, and here's what it says. What what causes you, when you're in a fight with somebody and you're arguing with somebody, what causes that? Well, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Take any argument you have with anybody and ask yourself, why am I arguing with this person? And the Bible's answer is, it's you. Now, most of us always point, it's somebody else, right? 
And I came across this verse, and I, you know, get in an argument with my wife, and this verse, the Holy Spirit would just drill it into my head, like, this is your fault. And she always agreed with me that this is the truth, <laughs> and that this verse works, you know. And if you buy this, if you say, wait a minute, there's something wrong with me that I can't love and have compassion, and I can't, you know, forgive, or I can't get over, or I can't let go, or I can't, whatever, it's me. There's a, such a power in that that, oh, wow, if I change, I can stop arguing and fighting. What causes these quarrels and fights among you? Isn't it that your passions are at war inside of you? You desire and you don't have. You murder, you covet, and you can't get it. And so you fight, you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You don't ask and receive because you ask wrong to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You have to make a choice. Your faith is either going to grow or it's going to shrink, you know, and the world's either going to get bigger or it's going to get smaller. Um, or do you suppose that it's of no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? Here's God yearning that the Holy Spirit who lives within us could have his way with us, that we would listen to his word as we read from the 119th Psalm and, and so on. Well, I think injustice and greed and racism and oppression and loneliness all stem from this breakdown of relationships related all the way back to sin. And then finally, <clears throat> there's the whole uh, physical arena. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, to our first parents in uh, verse 17, uh, you notice what happened, you know what happened. Uh, God said to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and uh, have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns, thistles, it'll bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread <clears throat> until you return to the ground, for uh, out of it you were taken, and for you uh, are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so the whole uh, physical arena of our lives, all the issues with diseases and sicknesses and aging and gray hair and death and all of those things, that whole physical arena of the struggles that we have uh, in this life uh, with the world, all of that, you know, is affected by this. And here's the deal. In any one of those arenas, it, it, there's nothing that can reverse what's going on in these four arenas in our life. There's nothing that can reverse it. No amount of money can overcome it. No form of government can change it. No amount of education can solve it. Only Christ can neutralize sin. Only Christ can neutralize the effects of sin. And uh, without reconciliation to God, without Christ's blood, there really is no recovery of our identity. There's no recovery of a relationship with God the way we started out. There's no uh, hope for uh, a life that's free from diseases and, you know, without Christ's resurrection. There's no harmony uh, with the world in which we live apart from Christ. There's no hope for a new body uh, free from all mental limitations and uh, so on apart from Christ's resurrected body. And so uh, Jesus is the only answer for the problems that we face. And Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God into the kingdom of this world. And the kingdom is here, the Bible says, um, not fully. It'll happen when Jesus returns. But when we become Christians, I want to suggest to you that we begin to experience uh, a substantial, not total, but a substantial, you know, psychological improvement. Uh, we begin to experience a substantial, not perfect, but a substantial relationship with God that gets reestablished through Christ. 
And we begin to realize that our sins have been forgiven and we begin to be filled with hope and joy and, and the love that God wants to give us. And we begin to experience some significant improvement in our relationships when we learn how to forgive as we've been forgiven. And we learn how to extend grace as grace has been given to us. And all of a sudden our marriages improve. And all of a sudden you know, people are always frustrated when uh, the marriage uh, divorce rate in the church is the same as the world. Because really, when we come into the kingdom of God, there ought to be this change, this not perfect, but substantial you know, um, uh, improvement in all of these four arenas in our life. And so, finally, then, we get to the warning, all right? Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse, 30, uh, verse 26. Here's the deal. If we go on sinning deliberately, if we say, okay, I know what God has to say, you know, I know what he says not to do, and I know what he says to do. And if I make my decision, I'm just not, not going to do it. I'm just going to ignore. I'm going to do my own thing. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Thanks. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. How serious is that? Like if you choose to keep on sinning when you know better, when the Holy Spirit's at work in your life and and uh, prompting you to do something you don't want to do or not do something that you are doing and so forth, uh, there's, no you, there's no place to turn to solve that when you deliberately make that conscious choice to deliberately go on sinning. Uh, what does remain, however, is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. What happens to the person who deliberately chooses to ignore God's word? I mean, this is pretty serious. Look what it is. Anybody who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, uh, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, when a Christian deliberately chooses to sin, the author says, it's like you're stomping on Jesus. That's how God's, when God sees that our heart is set on you know, doing the opposite of what he says, in spite of all that he's done for us, it's as if we're stomping on Jesus, as if we're walking all over him. It's as if we're mocking him and all that he stands for. You know, he came all the way from heaven to get rid of our sins, and now we're embracing our sins. And that's how God sees it. And not only that, but um, he goes on and, and talks about, you know, uh, how uh, God sees it as cheapening the blood of Christ, cheapening the life of Christ. In other words, God is really, you know, if you're going to treat my son this way after what I've done and what he's done for you, um, profane the blood of the covenant and um, outraged the spirit of grace. Like, you know, this is like Paul, you know, when he was writing, he said, you know, some people say, ah, oh, the grace of God, so let's sin all the more that grace may abound. Oh, forgiveness is free, so I just don't have to pay any attention, you know. And that just all proves that the Spirit of God is not really, you know, at work in, in a substantial enough way to make the difference 
that a Christian is supposed to experience. Peter said it like this. You remember he said, um, you have not, your life has not been redeemed with things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ Jesus. The blood of God, the life of God was shed so that you could have this eternal life. And it insults the Holy Spirit. It outrages the Holy Spirit. And it's like God does this huge undeserved favor for us, and we turn around and spit in his face for it because we refuse to return to being like him, like he originally created us to be. We do the exact opposite thing. And how serious is all this? Well, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's pretty serious. If we make that choice, you do this, and uh, there's no place to go. It's kind of like these warnings in the book of Hebrews are ramping up. If you just uh, take your Bible, the first uh, warning um, came in chapter 2, and uh, it's like all of this has to do with the Word of God. The first warning in chapter 2, the first couple of verses there, says, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we what? Drift. Drift away from it. We, must, we have to work at paying attention. to the, how, how much attention do we give to the word of God? And we have to work at it because if we drift, if we allow the world in which we live to kind of preoccupy us and divert us and so forth, we begin to drift. That's the first warning, right? Uh, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a retribution, how are we ever going to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and then it was attested to by those who heard, well, God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We've got to be careful that we don't drift from the word of God. That's how it starts. That's the first warning. The second warning comes in uh, chapter 3 in verse 7. Uh, the next part of this warning, therefore the Holy Spirit says, look, today if you hear his voice, listen, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Today if you hear his voice, don't shut it down. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness uh, where your fathers put me to the test and they saw my works for 40 years and therefore I was provoked with that generation and I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Right? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another. We need that fellowship, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we start going soft on our faith, you know, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And so that's the second warning. You know, if we um, harden our hearts, uh, we begin to drift. And then we harden our hearts. We, uh, we become hard-hearted, numb to the word of God. And then um, uh, the next uh, warning uh, comes in chapter 5 and verse 11. <clears throat> About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. First we drift, right? And then um, we become hard-hearted. We become numb. Um, we um, become sort of dull uh, then to the word of God. We have much to say. It's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
You need somebody to teach you all over again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everybody who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. You know, dullness is about hearing the word of God and not doing it. It's like, the, it's like hearing the word of God and not applying it, not having the guts or the courage or uh, the wisdom to know, all right, that mean, if God said this, that means I have to make these choices. I have to do these things. And so, you know, uh, chapter 6 continues with this thought, therefore, leave the elementary doctrines of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and instructions about washing and the laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. All this will do if God permits, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Oh, my goodness. Do you see how we drift and then, you know, we get hard-hearted? You know, we think that, you know, when we get to the word of God, it's our job to just decide whether we believe it or not instead of to do it, <laughs> right? And um, that's not what it's about. It's about conforming. It's about surrendering to the word of God and uh, giving ourselves to him. And so by the time we get to chapter 10 and we get to this um, fourth of the five warnings, uh, this is pretty serious. If we go on deliberately sinning, you know, there was no, remember we talked about this uh, there was no provision in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, for um, intentional sin, right? Numbers chapter 15. This is just, let me, is that time? Yeah. Uh, Numbers chapter 15, uh, verse 27. If, if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat, a year old, for a sin offering. Unintentional sin, right? And the priest shall make atonement uh, before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake, uh, when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, he shall be forgiven. And you shall have uh, one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is a native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But a person who does anything with a high hand, in other words, intentionally, whether he's a native or a sojourner, uh, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commands, uh, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on forever. Now, here's an example of this. Next couple of verses, verse 32. While the people of Israel were out in the wilderness, they found a guy who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. The seventh is the Sabbath. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor the son, the daughter, you know, maidservant, maidservant, so forth. So this guy, that's considered work, and he's out there. He's gathering some firewood. And uh, those who found him gathering sticks brought him to Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation, and they put him in custody because it had not been made clear what should be done to him. And the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, this man shall be put to death. You're kidding. This man shall be put, how serious is God about his command? This man shall be put to death for getting some firewood on Sunday. This man shall be put to death, Right? Because why? Because he's doing it intentionally. He knows what he's doing. He's like, I know what God says, but I don't really care. I don't give a rip. 
And so he goes and he does this, right? And the Lord says to Moses, the man should be put to death and all the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. And all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I'm sure we've all sinned worse than that, intentional. Do we appreciate what Christ did for us on the cross when he absorbed that penalty of death in our place? All of this... Uh, let me just read the last couple of verses here. Um, verse 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Every time I read that last sentence there, verse uh, 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I'm reminded of um, the time when I was seven years old and I was at Word of Life uh, Ranch. And uh, we, we were all at a meeting, and some guy was uh, preaching. And uh, I don't remember all the details, but he was uh, talking about the reality of hell. And he was describing hell kind of like uh, this author of Hebrews talks about it as uh, a flame, you know, a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire. And uh, I can just remember him describing this, this gaping like mouth and these flames that were leaping up out of this, you know, glowing pit that was endless and so forth. And, and then he said that um, all of you kids, you know, and I put myself in this position, uh, are like a spider hanging by a single, you know, uh, thread of uh, web, all right? And uh, precariously. And the only reason, the only reason that you're still there is because of God's pleasure, because God has allowed you to stay there. But at any second, that little thing could break and you'll be into hell forever, right? And then he went on to explain that the only way that you can get out of that position is in Christ. And so at seven years old, that was the night I trusted Christ. And so um, uh, since then, I've learned that uh, those images and that message really came from uh, Jonathan Edwards, who was a Puritan preacher here in New England. Uh, and it was a very famous sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And that was the night I trusted Christ. And I still remember it. That was also the night that I wet my bed. I was, I, I think in the, I, I must have been dreaming about that sermon or something. And it just scared me to death to think how precarious it is for people to live without Christ. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If he would, you know, take somebody's life for picking up sticks, he's pretty holy. Sin is not, you know, to be messed with. And we live in a culture like our Supreme Court trying to redefine marriage where, you know, I know what God says, but I don't care. And we can't be like that. And if we go soft on our faith, there's no forgiveness outside of Christ. And if we blow him off and we treat him and stomp on him and treat his blood as if it was you know, just like somebody else's blood. We'll be lost forever. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, you can go on the web. Uh, Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, actually, in Enfield, Connecticut, on July 8th in 1741. And uh, I don't know if it's still there, but there used to be a little monument, right, you know, describing that sermon right where he preached it. And uh, his church was in uh, uh, Northampton in Massachusetts. But anyway... Um, I would encourage you, go on the web and look up Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and read that sermon.
and uh, allow yourself the opportunity to ask yourself, am I shrinking in my faith or is my faith growing over the circumstances that God's allowing to continue to challenge my faith and grow it? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just pause to say thank you for your word. Thank you for your provision in Christ. It's more than we understand. It's more than we uh, give you credit for. It's so easy for us to get caught up in this life and to be sidetracked, Father, from uh, your call on our lives. And uh, we start using our lives in ways that it was never intended. And we know that we were intended to be like you. And that we're to be lights in the midst of the darkness of this world. And especially as Christians, as you have opportunity to begin to restore these different arenas in our life. Not perfectly in this life, but substantially. That we would see improvements in the way that we relate to people. We would see uh, improvements in the way that we worship our God because of the reconciliation that you've given us. That we would see a change and an improvement, Father, in, in just the way uh, we live our lives. Uh, even in the physical arenas that... Uh, as we trust you and take your wisdom and, and uh, apply it to our lives, that you then are able to bless us in ways that uh, you couldn't if we didn't. And so again, thank you for these warnings. Uh, may they sink into our heart in such a way that it, it doesn't create fear in us, but it creates a challenge for us to be true until the end as we sense our culture, uh, Father, challenging us on more and more fronts every day. Thank you for your love for us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.